Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Older adults make up 12% of the U.S. population, but account for 18% of all suicide deaths. Suicide attempts by older adults are much more likely to result in death than among younger persons. Today, my guests are Allie Walker, Project 2025 Chair, and Keith Tate, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Chair and Board Member of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention National Capital Area Chapter. They're going to talk about risk factors, intervention, and prevention strategies for older adults at risk of suicide. They will also talk about available resources to support family members affected by suicide. So welcome, Allie and Keith, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Okay. Well, Keith, let's get an overview from you. I mentioned a couple of statistics in my introduction, but I think it would be helpful for our listeners to learn a little bit more about suicide amongst older adults. Why is it such a critical concern? And and give us some information about age, gender, race comparison, and um, maybe reasons behind why suicide occurs amongst older adults. That's a great question. Um, as you mentioned, uh, suicide among older adults is a critical concern for several reasons. Uh, first, I would say high suicide rates. Um, Contrary to popular belief, suicide rates tend to be higher among older adults, especially among older men. In many countries, including the United States, individuals 65 and older have a higher suicide rate than any other age group. Also, you have isolation and loneliness. Social isolation and loneliness can be significant risk factors for suicide among older adults. As people age, they may experience the loss of loved ones, friends, and diminishing social circle. This can lead to feelings of isolation and depression, contributing to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Also, you have physical health challenges. Older adults often face many physical health challenges, including chronic illness, pain, and disability. These health issues can result in diminishing quality of life, which may lead to feelings of hopelessness and despair. To address the critical concern of suicide among older adults, it is essential to promote awareness, improve access to mental health services, reduce stigma, and provide social support systems that can help mitigate some of these risk factors. You already talked about the age and the gender, that it's more apparent uh, or it occurs more amongst men. We have so many different racial groups in our country. Do you have any statistics about the comparison maybe between, I don't know, African-Americans, Hispanic, uh, Asian populations? We have so many more in this country. Any statistics about that in terms of suicide rates, especially amongst older adults? Yep. So suicide rates among older adults can differ based on their race and ethnicity. However, multiple factors may affect these differences, including social and economic conditions. For instance, the suicide rates among white older adults are generally higher compared to other racial and ethnic groups among the older population. African-American older adults tend to have lower suicide rates than their white counterparts. However, this group may face other disparities in quality mental health care access. 
it's crucial to note that these statistics can change over time and may vary by region and country. Moreover, suicide rates are influenced by complex interplay of factors such as mental health, social support, access to lethal means, and cultural attitudes towards help seeking and suicide. So let's turn to warning signs. I'm sure that our listeners are interested in learning more about that, not only our listeners in terms of the older adults themselves, but their families as, as, as well. So in terms of warning signs, are there things that people should be watching for in, within themselves as well as family members that could indicate that there's a risk of suicide? What, what do we need to know? Yeah, so there are several um, warning signs that you can look out for. Um, first is expressing suicidal thoughts or feelings. So if they're verbalizing thoughts of suicide, even indirectly, such as saying they feel hopeless or that life is not worth living, uh, making statements like I wish I were dead or I can't go on. Also, another one would be isolation and with withdrawal, increasing social withdrawal and isolation, including avoiding friends and family or a loss of interest in previous enjoyed activities and hobbies. You also want to watch out for changes in their mood and behavior. If they are persistent sadness or have mood swings, increased irritability, agitation, or anxiety, uh, sudden calmness or improvement in mood after a period of depression, this may indicate that they have made a decision to attempt uh, suicide. Another one would be giving away their possessions. So if they're giving away cherished possessions or making final arrangements, such as writing a will or making funeral plans. Uh, and then last, if they have a lack of interest in personal care, so if they're neglecting personal hygiene, not taking prescribed medications or disregarding uh, any medical advice. Okay, well, Allie, I want to turn to you because there may be some other, uh, Keith has covered quite a few instances and and warning signs already, but I wanted to get into a few more. So a couple of different things. Uh, cognitive impairment, might that precipitate suicide? So let's talk about that first, and then I'll ask you a couple of other things in terms of possible risk factors or situations. Sure. Um, so in terms of risk factors among older adults, our cognitive impairment certainly is among those um, and probably, you know, maybe fair to say more commonly affects older people. Um, and one of the reasons for this is because cognitive impairment, uh, you know, represents changes that are happening in the brain that may also affect a person's mood. Um, they may have more depressive symptoms, um, which as Keith was talking about, those changes in mood are things that we want to pay attention to. And also it may affect a person's impulsivity. And that's something that when we think about suicide risk is really important. Is a person in a position where they're going to make a very sudden and drastic decision? Um, so those are certainly things that I think relate very closely to cognitive impairment. Now, does that mean that every person who has a cognitive impairment is, you know, certainly going to have thoughts of suicide? No. Um, thoughts of suicide, while they're, you know, more common than I think people realize, uh, many people have cognitive impairment, other conditions that we'll talk about that may put them at risk but do not in and of themselves mean that a person is going to think of or make an attempt to, towards suicide. Well, and I was also thinking of some others that you could talk about as well, 
loss of self-sufficiency. People can't take care of themselves. They've got some kind of disability or, or financial problems. Or and, and Keith mentioned this too, but you might want to talk a little bit more about stress related to personal issues, uh, uh, family discord or divorce or death. What do we need to know about how those might impact the possibility of suicide? I think all of those, you know, again, represent areas of risk. Um, You know, as people age, uh, they may be more prone to develop other physical health conditions. And when we think about mental health and physical health, they're all part of one big circle uh, and they affect each other. So as a person gets older, if they have some loss of independence because of physical changes that they're experiencing, that can be very challenging for any person to experience Um, you know, transition into retirement and having a change in the way that your income flows, that, of course, can create a lot of stress. For some people, a transition to retirement is a really exciting and positive time in their life. And for some people, it's very um, filled with uncertainty. And that can be scary. So I think all of these, you know, kind of as you use the word stress, and I think that really kind of encompasses these things, they're sources of stress. And a person being exposed to stress certainly can be at increased risk for suicide. Um, And one of the things that I think is important to mention when we're talking about suicide risk here is that uh, risk really is um, built upon a number of different factors that work together. So when we talk about suicide and what leads to a crisis, it's taking a person who has vulnerability, um, oftentimes that, that means mental health condition as part of that vulnerability, but a number of these different risk factors, right, that prolonged stress, financial strain, changes in mood symptoms, a sense of loss of independence, maybe a loss of connection um, to people in their circle. Maybe they have loved ones or close friends that are passing away. They're losing those relationships. All of these things interact. And that's what's really important, that interaction of risk factors superimpose on those other underlying vulnerabilities sometimes that we cannot see that can lead a person to a, a suicidal crisis. And is it possible, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if a peer or someone that they know might be a, a victim of suicide, might exposure to that or awareness of that, or might that be a, a risk factor? Absolutely. Exposure to suicide is in and of itself a risk factor. So, um, you know, with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, a lot of the resources that we offer include not only resources toward education for the public to understand what suicide risk is, to understand what those warning signs look like and how we can help people. We also have a lot of resources for folks who've been affected by suicide loss. And that's exactly for what you know, you're asking because when a person experiences a suicide loss or is exposed to a suicide, that certainly can put them at risk. And one thing that we uh, think about is a phrase called suicide contagion. And contagion is this phenomenon that can happen in a community after a suicide loss. Um, So if people are exposed to a suicide, and that could be within your personal circle that could be on a more public forum, like an elected official or someone very reputable in the community, that exposure can put somebody at risk if they're already, again, 
already living with some vulnerabilities that put them at risk for suicide. And then if they have an exposure to suicide, that especially if that's impacting them, or if we talk about it in a way that's unsafe, we report on suicide in a way that dramatizes that, um, that can contribute to that contagion. And I'd like to bring this a little bit closer to home then. If an older adult has previously attempted suicide or has a family history of suicide, might that person also be more likely to die by suicide? Great question, Cheryl. Uh, The answer is yes. Past suicidal behavior is one of the stronger predictors for future suicidal behavior. And of course, having a family history can also play a role. Um, I want to clarify, though, that just because a person has previously attempted suicide or had thoughts of suicide does not mean that they are predestined to go on to die by suicide or to even make another attempt. The majority of people who have survived a suicide attempt in the past will not go on to die by suicide. Does that mean that we can completely disregard that past history? No, we've got to continue to keep that in mind and that's a consideration for what their future risk could be. And um, one thing that might be helpful is to kind of frame this thought of risk uh, the way that we would think about heart disease and a person's risk for a heart attack. Because when we talk about health conditions, whether it's mental health or physical health, we have to think about it in that same way, that same framework of risk factors. So just like if a person has, you know, a family history, a strong family history of heart disease, and maybe they've previously had a heart attack, that person is at higher risk than someone who hasn't had those things for having future problems with heart disease or heart attack. Um, But if we intervene earlier, if we recognize that those things put them at risk and we make sure that they're exercising, that they have a healthy diet, that they're on the right medications if they need medication, all of those things can help to reduce those risks. So we can think about suicide risk in the same way that we would think about risk for any other health condition. And one thing, Ali, I just wanted to, this is more of a, of a phrase. Um, so often you hear people using the phrase commit suicide, and I'm not hearing you say that. I'm hearing you say die by suicide. Can you give us a, just a brief uh, explanation of why you're not using that term? Absolutely. So when we talk about suicide, the language we use is really important because when we talk about anything, the way that we phrase things can have implications that are carried through even when we don't intend there to be any implications. And, uh, you know, commit suicide is a common phrase. It's a phrase that I have previously said in the past. Um, But commit tends to carry some judgment, some implications or negative connotations. Um, In fact, there's actually a historical component to this too. So in the state of Virginia, for example, suicide still remains a common law crime. Um, It doesn't carry any real legal ramifications at this point in time, but there is a precedent and a history for um, criminalizing suicide. So um, that's just one of the many reasons why commit can sometimes carry through some negative connotations. So we try to avoid using any language that could confer judgment. So rather than saying commit 
suicide, I would say the person died by suicide or made an attempt. Um, And when we talk about suicide attempts, we have to be very intentional in the way that we talk about that as well. So it's very common for people to describe uh, an attempt as successful or unsuccessful to, to communicate if a person died from that attempt. But success in and of itself also carries some implication, right? And I would say that there's no such thing as a successful attempt. If a person dies by suicide, that is very far away from what any of us would consider a success. And so these are phrases that are so common in our community. um, And it's a good opportunity here for us to kind of educate each other and remind each other that when we talk about these things, we want to be as intentional and careful as possible so that we don't accidentally imply things that, you know, I don't think most people mean when they're talking about this topic. And I would like to ask one more question before our break, and that given the fact that you and Keith have both talked about risk factors and possibilities and symptoms or signs and symptoms, why is it important for healthcare providers and caregivers, care partners, family members to recognize these warning signs of suicide in older adults? I think that is an excellent question. And the reason that this is so important is because suicide is preventable. We know that there are strategies that work to treat um, suicidal thinking to treat underlying mental health conditions, which are exceedingly common in people who have suicidal thoughts and behaviors. In fact, among those who have died by suicide, we know that more than 90% of them had a mental health condition. That doesn't mean it was necessarily diagnosed or treated fully. So it's really important that we are aware of these things because it's an opportunity to intervene. And just like you know, we were talking about earlier, this comparison with how we think about other health conditions like heart disease and heart attacks, uh, the more that we think early on about a person's risk and we identify warning signs that we're getting close to dangerous territory, that's an opportunity for us to step in and to help them. And I'm really passionate about this, particularly in um, the healthcare field, because I work clinically as a PA and um, I work in an ICU. So you wouldn't necessarily think that suicide prevention is at the forefront of my mind, but patients come in to the health system every day for all kinds of different reasons. And sometimes we neglect to acknowledge how important their mental health is and playing a role in the physical health and how closely related those things are. Um, But when we are talking with patients or we're talking with our family members and our friends, we have every opportunity to recognize, you know, maybe this person's having a really hard time. Um, And if we're not sure, we can always ask and find out. And that provides us with an opportunity to help them before it's too late. Well, this is a good time just to pause then, and we'll be talking more about prevention and what to look for and resources available in the second half. We have two very excellent guests this afternoon, Allie Walker, who is with Project 2025. She's the chair of that project, and Keith Tate, who is the chair of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. He's also a board member, and both of these guests are with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the National Capital Area Chapter, which is what we're talking about, suicide awareness and prevention. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. We are talking about suicide prevention and awareness today, and my guests are Allie Walker and Keith Tate, who are with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the National Capital Area Chapter. And Keith, I wanted to get back to you now, as uh, uh, we were talking earlier about risk factors and uh, different aspects of what precipitates suicide. I wanted to get more now in terms of how to offer support. So if a care partner or a family member is concerned about an older relative being at risk of suicide, how can they offer support? So let's start with that. And then at this, after you've discussed that, what should they avoid doing? Great question, Cheryl. So I would say one of the main things that uh, you can do as a caregiver or a family member, if you're concerned about um, someone being at risk for suicide, is have, having open and non-judgmental communication. So what that means is you want to approach the person with empathy, understanding, and active listening. Let them know that you care about their well-being and that you are here to support them. And you can use I statements to express your concerns, such as, I've noticed you've been feeling down lately and I'm worried about you. Then I would say you want to encourage them to seek professional help because just having that open communication may not be enough. Suggest that they seek professional help from a mental health provider, a counselor, a therapist, or a psychiatrist. And then you can offer to help them find a healthcare provider. You can sit down and help them schedule an appointment if they're willing. You can go to those appointments with them. And then after that, you want to make sure that you stay connected. So you continue to stay in touch and spend time with them. Um, you want to make sure they're not isolating themselves and that you are there to, you know, just be here for them to uh, listen to. And then last, if there are firearms or other lethal means in the home, consider removing them temporarily or securing them in a way that limits their access. Um, I would say the things that you want to avoid doing is minimizing their feelings. So try to avoid telling the person to, quote unquote, snap out of it or that their problems aren't significant. Take their feelings seriously, even if you don't fully understand them. Uh, don't blame or guilt them uh, for their feelings or thoughts of having suicide. Avoid saying things like uh, you're being selfish or think of how this will affect us. Um, and don't ignore the signs or dismiss their feelings. It's one of the last things you want to do. Ignoring the problems won't make it go away and may exacerbate the situation. And then you want to refrain from criticizing their actions or blaming them for their circumstances. You want to stay focused on offering support and understanding. And if I could add to that, Keith, I would just say that um, sometimes minimizing feelings is something that we don't even realize we're doing. You gave some really great examples and I would add to that that, you know, sometimes when a person says that they're thinking of suicide, we want to respond by making them feel better. And we may want to offer solutions and we might say, oh, you know, look on the bright side or, hey, it's not that bad. And we have every good intention when we say those things. But in actuality, we're kind of negating what they're telling us. We're trying to minimize how they're feeling by saying that it's not so bad. So I, I wanted to add that too, that sometimes we don't realize that we're doing that. So it's good to be thoughtful about how what we're saying might come across. And we want to make sure that instead we validate a person's feelings. And again, in that conversation, really just being a listener. 
And the only other thing I did want to point out about this, because this is a question that Keith and I get a lot, is does asking about suicide make a person think about or make an attempt towards suicide? And this is a question that has been heavily researched, and the answer is no. Um, Asking about suicide directly is extremely important, and it is a protective factor. It um, can be really hard to tell somebody that you're having these thoughts. It's really scary to have those thoughts. So when we ask a person about suicide, we give them an opportunity. We open that door so that they feel comfortable. They know that we're there to talk about it with them, and we genuinely care about the answer. So um, don't shy away from this question because you're worried that you might suggest the idea to them because we have studied time and again this question, and we know that not to be the case. And I wanted to, in this whole vein of what you both are are telling us, then is it, and I'll direct it to Keith, but you're both certainly welcome to answer it. Is it possible then to assess the risk of suicide in an older adult? And then given the fact that we have been talking about healthcare providers' awareness as well, or they should be aware, are there actually screening options that are available that, say, the healthcare provider uh, could use? I'll direct it at Keith, and then, Allie, you're welcome to add anything if you wish. Yeah, so I, I can uh, try to you know answer that first part, and then maybe um, the second part of the, are there any types of screening? Uh, Ali can kind of chime in. But um, assessing the risk is a complex process that typically involves a comprehensive evaluation by a healthcare professional, such as a mental health provider or physician. Um, there are various tools and screening options available to help identify individuals at risk of suicide, but it's important to note that no single test can definitively predict suicide risk. What I'm hearing you saying is there is, in terms of screening options, then if somebody does go to a healthcare provider, can that person, whether a um, physician or a nurse practitioner, or uh, Allie, you said that you're a physician assistant. Are there those screening options available? Yeah, those screening options are absolutely available. Um, And as Keith mentioned, there are a lot of different tools out there. There are a handful that are you know, better validated than others. Uh, but as Keith mentioned too, it is a comprehensive assessment. So a lot of times, um, you know, you might go to your primary care provider or you might go in for an appointment at the hospital or you, maybe you get admitted to the hospital. And a lot of times they're going to ask you about suicide. Um, and they may ask first about, you know, are you having changes in your mood lately? Have you been feeling depressed? And and those are questions they're asking because they're screening you. And so they're probably being guided by a, a, some kind of tool that's been validated to help us get at a person's risk. And again, it is a, a much more comprehensive process. So usually that screening tool helps us identify you know, people whose answers make us more concerned that something might be going on. And then the risk assessment you know, comes subsequent to that screening tool and takes into account a much broader conversation and investigation into what's going on with this person. Um, And it is really a combination of science and art, just like so much of medicine. It takes some practice and expertise to get really good at these. Um, But health providers uh, across the gamut should have training to help them conduct these. And oftentimes they may Um, you know, especially if you're in the hospital or at a specialist, they may lean on people in the mental health field 
to help them conduct that more thorough risk assessment. Um, but those screening tools are really common and can be used kind of in any setting. And to that point, Allie, then, of course, we know that not all older adults are on Medicare. And so I was wondering about insurance coverage. Uh, we can talk about Medicare coverage or other insurance plans. If one of our listeners is thinking about getting this kind of risk assessment or the mental health services, will insurance cover it, Medicare or other plans? Great question. So um, the one of the wonderful things that the Affordable Care Act did is it said, hey, look, uh, insurance companies, mental health is as important as physical health, and we have to treat it that way, and that means we have to pay for it in the same way. So if you go for a primary care appointment or you want to see a mental health professional for concern, your insurance plan, whether it's Medicare or a private insurance plan, should cover it with the same benefits that it would if you went to see a primary care doctor for a physical concern or you went to another medical specialist. Um, so, so in short, yes, your insurance plans should cover these things. Um, the Joint Commission sets patient safety goals for, uh, you know, healthcare providers and networks. Um, and suicide risk screening is among those patient safety goals. So this is a priority across healthcare. So if you go into your um, primary care office and say that you want to be seen because you've been having some symptoms of depression. Uh, or really bad anxiety, and you know maybe you do or maybe you don't mention suicidal thoughts. Um, the best practice is they should also screen you. Any person who's coming in with a behavioral health concern, and when I say behavioral health, um, that's kind of our medical lingo, but a mental health condition or a mental health concern, they should be screening you for suicide risk, among the other things that they do during that visit. And your insurance plan should cover that. Now, the one... Um, caveat that I will say is that one continued barrier to accessing mental health care is that not all mental health providers accept insurance. And this, you know, we run into this among other specialists in medicine as well. So you just want to be cautious that when you are seeking out mental health care, if you're trying to see a specialist, just make sure that you know before you go to your appointment whether or not they are going to take insurance um, so that you don't get stuck paying out of pocket when you weren't prepared to. But, um, you know, your primary care, they should be, um, you know, they are covered by Medicare, for example. Part B covers an annual depression screening. They cover an annual wellness visit. That includes conversation about your mental health. Um, and you can always prompt these conversations, too, when you go for your annual exam Make sure that you're talking not only about the physical aspects of your health, but also doing that checkup from the neck up and talking about your stress level and your emotional health and um, your spiritual health and all of those other things that factor into our mental health. Thank you. That's very helpful in terms of Medicare coverage and other insurance coverage as well. I wanted to turn to the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Talk about that. What types of assistance is available? What happens if someone is at home or in some place where they call that number? Walk us through what we need to know. Sure. So um, if any of you all may remember, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline used to be a really long 1-800 number. Now, you can still dial that number and get the lifeline. 
But through a lot of advocacy work with AFSP and other organizations, we said, hey, you know, if a person is having a mental health crisis, remembering this really long 1-800 number is not going to be helpful to getting access to, you know, crisis services. So why don't we have a number similar to 911 that people can call if they have a concern that relates to mental health and that includes substance use? So the 988 number is how you get a hold of this lifeline. And again, you can kind of think about it like you're calling 911, but for a mental health concern. Um, now you can call this in an emergency. So say that you're with someone who is in a suicidal crisis, meaning they're telling you that they are thinking about dying and that perhaps they have a plan um, and you're really worried about them, you can call that number you know, with them there with you. And the people on the phone are highly trained. So they will kind of talk with you, talk with the person that you're with if they're willing to talk with them and try to get a better understanding of what's going on. And then based on that conversation, they'll be able to do their own risk assessment to determine what services they would recommend. Um, so they can dispatch, like in our area, they can dispatch a mobile crisis unit. So there's a big movement in emergency response to get away from sending just police and EMS for mental health services and really make sure that there's a mental health professional involved so that you're getting seen by the people that understand these things the best. Um, and, you know, if the person is, let's say they're in the midst of making an attempt, that might be a more a uh, significant emergency where then medical services are required. So they may just dis recommend dispatching 911. Um, you know, not all callers call in the midst of a crisis. They may um, find that that person is not imminently at risk, but that they need some help. So 988 specialists can also help navigate local resources and give you some advice in terms of where to go to get more help. So they're a really great resource, and I would just say that if you are concerned and you're really feeling uncomfortable and you're not sure what the right thing is to do, you can always call 988. That's your safety net. They will guide you through that, and they will help you figure out what the right next step is. Um, the last thing I just want to say about 988 is that some people get nervous um, calling this number, understandably so, and they don't necessarily want um, to be located. The 988 number does not have the ability to track your phone and know where your location is. So you have to be willing to share that information if they feel they need to send services to you. Um, but for privacy purposes, that, that's an important thing I just want to note for some people who may avoid calling that number because they're worried about that. And 988 is available throughout the United States. Is that true? That is correct. And the way that the number works is it will preferentially route you to the local um, lifeline hub. So every area has their own crisis centers. And ideally, it's helpful to talk to the local crisis workers because they're going to know local resources the best. But um, we don't want anyone to call this number and have a wait time where they can't reach someone when they really need help. So if for some reason that local center is unable to take the call when the caller comes through, then they will route it to some of the bigger national centers, um, and those folks will be able to provide help. And they do have access to great resources online, so they can help still certainly navigate um, how to get help and access mental health treatment in your area. 
Okay, well, Keith, I wanted to get back to you. Allie's been talking about the 988 number. What other resources are available for older adults that are having suicidal thoughts? And and explain to us about how these services can help the persons in crisis. Sure, great question. Uh, so Allie kind of touched on a few of these. Um, well, obviously, you, you know, if you know if someone is in an immediate uh, crisis, the best uh, resource would be the emergency departments. Adults can seek help at the nearest uh, emergency department, and medical personnel are trained to assess and manage uh, psychiatric emergencies. Um, and then you have like your mental health providers and therapists. Uh, and they can establish relationships with a mental health provider or therapist um, and if they are experiencing thoughts of uh, suicide or having a crisis. And then you have your mobile crisis teams, which uh, Ali touched on. And some communities have these mobile crisis teams, which consist of mental health professionals who can respond to individuals in crisis in their homes or other locations. And how they kind of help is the mobile crisis team can conduct assessments, they provide crisis intervention, and they can connect older adults to appropriate mental health services. Uh, also, you have community-based support services. So many communities offer support services for older adults, which includes senior centers, support groups, and case management. These resources can provide emotional support and help address social isolation and loneliness, which are risk factors of, of suicide. And then lastly, and most importantly, are like your family and friends. Um, supportive family members and friends can play a vital role in helping older adults in crisis, encouraging them to seek professional help and providing emotional support are crucial steps. And Keith, as uh, we've been talking about this, and, and I, was, I was really intrigued as I was preparing the interview questions, I came across the phrase suicide protective factors. What is meant by that? What, what do they include and, and how can older adults attain these suicide protective factors? This sounds very important. Uh, suicide protective factors are characteristics, circumstances, or resources that can help reduce the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in individuals. These factors act as a buffer against suicide risk and contribute to an individual's resilience and well-being. While it's important to identify and address risk factors for suicide, enhancing protective factors is equally essential in suicide prevention. Protective factors can vary from person to person, but they generally include the following, strong social support, access to mental health care, effective problem-solving skills, positive coping mechanisms, and religious and spiritual beliefs. Uh, these can be attained by encouraging older adults to maintain and develop social connections, such as participating in senior centers, joining clubs or organizations, or staying in touch with family and friends. And I was wondering also, and I'm going to get into the medical aspects uh, with both of you, but we'll start with you there, Keith. Can the treatment for depression help reduce the likelihood of suicide among older adults? Yes, uh, treatment for depression can significantly reduce the likelihood of suicide among older adults. Depression is a well-established risk factor for suicide, and effectively addressing and treating depression is a crucial step in suicide prevention for older, older individuals. Okay, well then, I'm going to turn back to you, Allie. Let's talk about the different types of treatment. Given this is such a complex issue that we're talking about, 
when are medications the treatment of choice to prevent suicide? And help us understand more about this. Are there certain types that are prescribed? Uh, Do we need to worry about side effects? Might that be a factor? What do we need to know? So I think at the core, the biggest takeaway with treatment here is that treatment is individualized, just like any other medical condition that you seek treatment for. Um, Helping someone who's living with thoughts of suicide is going to be tailored based on that individual. And so sometimes that means there are certain treatments that may be more effective based on how a person is presenting to you. It can also depend on what a person's resources are to engage in certain types of treatment. It can depend on their Uh, openness to different things. You know, some people are more willing to take medication. Some people prefer to avoid adding to the pill box. So it can be challenging. Um, You know, we want to be thoughtful and keep in mind a a person's individual preferences as we navigate their treatment. So when it comes to talking about medications, we have to kind of factor all of that in, in our assessment of the individual. Um, But absolutely, medications are a component of treatment. Um, As I mentioned before, 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental health condition. So when we think of treatment, I think the first step is really making sure that we're treating any underlying mental health condition that's present. Um, So if a person is struggling with depression or they have anxiety or perhaps they have bipolar disorder, we have different medications that we may use depending on what the mental health condition is. So that can vary a little bit in terms of what medications get prescribed. There are more specific meds that we know are uh, more effective at targeting the suicidal thoughts themselves. Um, But again, it kind of does to some degree depend a little bit on the underlying mental health conditions that that person has when we're picking between our options. Um, I would say one of the most common medications that we start with uh, for many people is going to be something like uh, an SSRI. And this is a medication or an SNRI. This is a class of medications that are commonly prescribed for people with depression and anxiety. Um, And there are a number of different uh, options in these categories. They tend to have slightly different side effects, depending on which one you get prescribed. Oftentimes, one of the more common things is some GI upset. Um, So meaning upset stomach, some nausea, maybe a little bit of um, diarrhea. And that's because the way that those drugs work um, actually affects receptors, not just in the brain, but also in the gut. So, um, and usually a lot of these symptoms do subside after the first couple of weeks of medication. So we know that these medications are starting to work when a person has these side effects. Um, And they'll start at a low dose and increase over time as the patient needs to try to help mitigate those symptoms early on. Um, But if you can get over the hump in the beginning, a lot of them do tend to get better over time. Um, One of the uh, most common and most effective medications that we have in our arsenal for suicide specifically is actually lithium. Um, And lithium is a drug that's also used a lot in the management of bipolar disorder. Um, and we just have to be careful because like any medication, they all have side effects. Lithium does have some side effects. So your pre- 
provider, whoever is prescribing this medication to you, would want to check your labs every so often. We want to monitor your weight um, and things of that sort. But, you know, this is a very broad overview. Like I said, there are a lot of different options. And it, again, does depend very much on the individual. All right. Well, this has been incredible in terms of uh, both uh, both of you providing so much information in terms of what we need to know about uh, suicide, and for especially for the person who might be thinking about that. But there's another side of this as well. And Elliot, I'd like to hear more, and I'm sure our listeners would as well about the support services and programs that are available to the family members that are affected by suicide. What, what's available out there to help them to heal? And, and what, do we, what should we know as far as what support is out there? Yeah, so like we talked about earlier, when people lose a loved one to suicide, that can be really challenging and can also in and of itself be a risk factor for suicide. So getting support after loss is really important. And sometimes, you know, we turn inward in periods of loss. It's really helpful to try to um, think more about what's around us and bringing resources in toward us so that we are not closed off and grieving alone um, because that isolation can make it even worse. So um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention actually really started in this area of supporting people after suicide loss. So if you go to AFSP.org, um, there are resources on our website for folks who've been affected by suicide loss. Um, some of the resources on there include uh, more independent self-study types of things. So if you're looking to read a little bit more about suicide and the journey of healing after losing someone, there are some really great book recommendations. They have some excellent blog posts written by people around the country who have chosen to share their stories of loss and healing. Um, they have some interviews with folks who've been impacted by suicide loss who talk a little bit about their story as well. So, And those things can be really helpful in just remembering that this is something that many people have gone through, that you're not alone, that you're not the only person who's been affected by suicide loss, and that those waves of emotion that you're feeling are not unusual. Um, if you're looking to connect with other people and have more of a one-on-one -on -one or group conversation, some folks find that particularly helpful. So there's also a search tool for finding uh, support groups in your area. So if you want to attend a support group, you can use our tool to search online. Um, AFSP itself does not run any support groups, and we don't provide any specific endorsements, but we do try to maintain an updated list as much as possible so that folks can find them in their area. We also offer something called the Healing Conversations Program, and I, I love this program. I just want to give it an extra plug because the Healing Conversations Program is comprised of volunteers. I actually am one of them who have experienced a suicide loss and really want to reach out and support other people who are new in their grief. Um, and when I say new in their grief, that could mean that they just recently lost someone or perhaps they lost someone many years ago and this is the first time they're really reaching out to talk about it. We do have a lot of people like that. Um, so the Healing Conversations program is a great free program where you'll be connected to peers who um, will, you know, they can call you on the phone, they can have a video visit over Zoom or whatever you 
platform you like, um, we can just have a phone call or communicate over email. So it really is at the comfort of the person who's reaching out um, through the program. But uh, you connect with a peer and, um, you know, it's just an opportunity to talk to somebody who may be able to relate and understand your situation and ask them questions about what was helpful to them in their grief journey. And, you know, is what I'm experiencing normal, which it probably is. Um, so yeah, those are some of the really excellent resources that are available. And then I will say that locally, um, in our chapter, we also try to keep a list of resources that we've found in our area. So if you visit our website at afsp.org slash N-C-A-C for National Capital Area Chapter. Um, We have an article on our page that also kind of goes a little bit more in depth with some of the grief groups that are available in the area and things like that. Okay. Any final comments? We're just out of time. I think the last thing I will just mention about that is that we do have Survivor Day events in November. So if you're looking to... um, you know, participate in an event in person and meet other people who've been affected by loss and hear their stories, I invite you to join us in November for the International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. That information is on your website? Yes. Okay. Well, I want to thank Allie Walker and Keith Tate with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the National Capital Area Chapter, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us on the show. This has been great. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at that site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio programs and the TV show episodes, as well as access the Aging Matters podcasts, which are, of course, are on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music